letter this week from the Jehovah's Witnesses. In it, they invited me to a Zoom meeting where they would talk about the resurrection and about Jesus. Unfortunately, they did not give me the link. They asked me to call them first, and then they would probably have to vet me to make sure that I'm not a pastor, and then invite me to, uh, to see it. All that to be said, Easter is coming, and we would like you to invite your neighbors to Easter service here. Next week, we will have little cards with our information so people can be invited, but begin praying for who God would put on your heart to invite to service, because if the Jehovah's Witnesses are sending letters out to people, inviting them to their stuff, perhaps we as God's people should reach out to our neighbors and show them the truth and invite them to come for Easter. So that's what I would ask you to do. Begin to think about who can you ask. I already have a few in our neighborhood that I would like to reach out to. Um, and, and whether they go to church or not, whether you know if they're believers or not, invite them. There's a, a statistic running around there. I don't know how much it's true. I heard somewhere that 87.9% of all statistics are made up. But there is a statistic out there that says 90% of people would go to church if someone just invited them. There's a big amount of people who are out there willing to come to church, but they've just never been invited. And maybe they just haven't really, don't know where to look, don't know what to, to do. And they might be seeking, but they haven't decided. So you could be what pushes them over the edge to attend church. Now, here's the thing. If you are at your house getting drunk every night and banging on the walls and being a bad neighbor, maybe not invite your neighbors to church because I don't know if they would want to be like you. Okay, so... Think about your neighbors and turn to Philippians with me. Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, we'll be starting in verse 21. One of the biggest or most distinct memories I have from my military days was preparing for deployment. They had all these things that we had to do, all these checklists that we had to um, complete all these um, evaluations, physical and mental, and everything in, in between. But one of the most distinctive parts of preparing for deployment was getting ready to die. They asked you to fill out a will. Who is going to inherit the 25 cents that you have? Right? Who is going to get that new car that you just bought? Who is going to take care of your affairs when you die? And then you had to fill out a power of attorney, which makes sure that your spouse can do all the legal things that she has to do while you're gone. And if you die, she has to be able to arrange the funeral. And finally, then there's the um, life insurance. Who is going to inherit that life insurance? How much are they going to get? Making sure all of that is squared away. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's important for soldiers to be prepared to die before deployment? Well, so they could live, so they can concentrate on the task at hand, so they can focus on the war effort, they can focus on their deployment and not have to wonder, if I die, who's taking care of my family back home? And so part of preparing for life is preparing to die. And that's what we see here with Paul. Paul is prepared to die. In fact, he longs to die. So let's go ahead and look at verse 21 through 26. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
Now if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Jesus Christ may abound. What powerful words are those? Let's go ahead and pray. Almighty God, prepare my heart to die so that I might live in you. Father, prepare me to live for Christ in every, in every event. Father, I pray for this congregation that as they hear this sermon, that they would be transformed by the gospel, that every heart in this room would, would thump a little bit faster, would beat a little bit harder to live for Jesus Christ. And what does that mean and what does that look like, Father? God, I ask that I would not be a distraction from your word, but only help to illuminate what is already here. God, I know that there are many people here with worldly things that are holding them down, struggles in their lives and, and hardships that they're experiencing. I pray that they would be able to focus on this so that they would be able to prepare themselves to meet those challenges later on in their lives. God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace upon us. We thank you for the week that we've had where we've had a wana and we were able to do the Grand Prix here yesterday and all the kids that were able to come and race their cars and all the fun that was was had all in order to glorify you more. Father, as we set about the task of studying your word, I pray that we are prepared, mentally, physically, emotionally ready to receive your word today. And all these things I ask in the beautiful, precious name of Jesus. Amen. We could call this sermon, How to Live and How to Die, or we could call it The Christian's Dilemma. There's two main themes kind of running through this text. And the first one, of course, relates to what we talked about last week. Last week I told you, don't waste your suffering. That there is a purpose in your suffering and that you should not waste it. Don't let it go to waste by being distracted by all these other things. Paul was very focused on giving glory to God. In verse 20, at the very end, he says, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That was his big hope. That was his great expectation, was that Christ would be honored. And so as he is able to suffer, he's able to um, deal with what life looks like. He has a fundamental understanding of something. He has a foundational philosophy. His foundational philosophy was this, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What does it take for someone to be able to say that? Well, the first thing we see is that when he says, for me, he's declaring something. He's making a declaration. When the colonies declared independence from the British, what did they say? We hold these truths to be self-evident, right? We do this. Was that the Bill of Rights or the Declaration of Independence? I might have got him mixed up. So he declared something in particular. And what he said is, 
for me to live as Christ and die as gain. If you break this up, you can see it's broken into four parts. Three are in the first. He says, for me. It's a very personal relationship that he has. He has allegiance to Jesus Christ, and he has a personal connection with who Jesus is. When he says, for me, he is saying not just for me, but for me in my personal experience, I know Jesus. Can that be said about you? Because that's foundational to the rest of this sentence. To live is practical. To live is Christ. What is this practical living that Paul did? Paul, his whole life was focused on one thing. When he woke up in the morning, he was thinking, how can I honor Christ? When he went to bed at night, he was not thinking, what is tomorrow going to bring? But what is tomorrow going to bring? He's excited to live for Christ. It's practical. Everything about his life was focused in on the task of living for Jesus. Every aspect. He was like an athlete who would not get drunk the night before a track meet because he is focused on the task at hand. He is like a, um, a, a race car driver who spends time studying the racetrack in order to make sure that he can turn. Everything about his life was purposed for living for Christ. It was practical. So not only was it personal, it was practical. And then finally he says this. He says, is Christ. For me to live is Christ. Do you hear the poem in that? Do you hear the, the cadence? In the Greek, there is, there is no is. There is no verb. For me to live Christ, for me to die gain, is how you would read it in that Greek. And so we see that Paul says it's possible. Not only is it personal, not only is it practical, it's possible. Why is it possible? Because of Christ. That name Christ means Messiah, means Savior, means the anointed one, the one who has come to save you. So Paul is not saying I do this on my own effort. He's not saying that I earn this salvation. It's because of Christ. So for me to live is Christ. It is possible because of Christ, because of what he has done. So Paul, when he lives, he has one thing on his mind. It's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and how that relates to everyday life. Is that your mind? Is that your mindset? I did a little, I took a little liberty and I made up my own little saying. And I took the words that Paul said to blank is Christ. I took out live and I started adding in things. And this is what I kind of got came up with. To breathe is Christ. To work is Christ. To do the dishes is Christ. To surf the internet is Christ. To watch TV is Christ. Living for Christ means that the whole life is Christ, is for Christ, and is enabled by Christ. What do you do in your life? Think about the things that you do, your activities during the day. Is there anything in there that is not being done for Christ? Consider why that is. What is it about this world that draws you more to the world than to Christ? Are you watching TV shows that are filthy? Are you listening to music 
that is bad for your heart. Would Christ sit next to you and watch that TV show? Would Christ read that book with you? Would Christ like the attitude that you have when you do the dishes for your mom or your dad or at your house? Think about that. What does it mean to live for Christ? Because you will not die for Christ if you cannot live for Christ. And he says, death is gain. The same prison that Paul is writing this from, he talks about living for Christ in Colossians and in Galatians. And so let's jump over to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And keep your finger in Philippians because that's where, where we're going to stay. But let's look at what he says about living for Christ. And imagine Paul just for a minute. He is in prison. This is probably house arrest for him. He's probably chained to a Roman guard. And this Roman guard, listening to what Paul is saying, having this other man write down the information. Remember, he had like a, an, a, a scribe that would write down what Paul says to this lawyer. He was dictating it. Could you imagine that guard if he had seen anything not true in Paul's life? What do you think that guard would be saying? Huh, that guy's a liar. He doesn't live for Christ. So Paul has a lot of accountability, doesn't he? And so he says this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been put to death with Christ. My life is dead with Christ. And he says, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't think you can get more emphatic there. Now, some of you may be objecting in your mind right now. Well, that's good for Paul. Paul didn't have anything else to live for. But Paul did have something else to live for. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was high up in the religious structure of the day. He could have very easily made a nice little profit being a Roman citizen, but instead he cast it all away and called it all dung. All of it is garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul says, it is no longer me who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith. When you think about this word faith, I want you to think about three main concepts. When you think about faith, there's knowledge. What is knowledge of faith, saving faith in particular? Well, it's knowing what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you, knowing the significance of that event that happened 2,000 years ago. He knows, but he doesn't just know, he believes. That's the second aspect of what faith is. He believes that that message is true. He believes that what is said is correct. And so you must, to have faith, you must know the story, know the message. You have to believe that message. And here's the thing. We know that the demons know and believe, don't they? But they don't have saving faith because they don't trust. That's the third aspect of faith. You have to trust in who Jesus Christ is and live your life out of that abundance. And so some of us may have some anxiety in our hearts. And that anxiety continues to build when we stop trusting that God is in control of the situation. We could try to steal money and sin because we're not trusting. So trust is foundational 
to living in obedience to Jesus Christ. So you have to have knowledge, you have to have belief, you have to know it's true, and you have to trust in that truth. That's the three aspects of faith. So when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. He doesn't just say, I live by faith. It's not some cozy little feeling that we get when we think about Jesus, the, the images that we have of Jesus as this kind guy holding a lamb or having the kids around him laughing. These are all pictures of Jesus that we have. But if that's all we have is feelings, we're not really trusting in Jesus. We're not really believing him. We cannot live to die if we do not know this Jesus. And then he writes in Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. So jump over there with me, or make sure you keep your finger in Philippians, because that's where we, we will stay. Paul is talking about what it's like to put sin to death, how to kill that sin nature in your heart. And he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The theology of of Life in Christ is very strong with Paul. Paul really focuses it in. He brings it up. He's not saying that he is perfect. He is saying that perfection is when I arrive before Jesus Christ, when I die. Verse 22 says, Now if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. If I live on in the flesh, it means fruitful work. So we're, become, we're coming into Paul's dilemma. But before we get to Paul's dilemma, how does Paul view death? Death is no longer an enemy to Paul. Death is now a friend because it's the pathway to perfection in Christ. It's the pathway to being with his Savior that he has committed his whole life to living for. I wonder if that could be said about you. Do you fear death? If so, why? Let that be a, a teacher for you. Death is a teacher. It teaches us to wonder, where are our priorities? When you prepare for a deployment, you start changing some of your priorities, don't you? No longer is living the party really the most effective part of your life or the best part? Do you want to be remembered as the drunk of the platoon? Or do you want to be remembered for your efforts? Paul has a um, five-fold way of preparing his mind for Jesus. I'm going to go through this quick. Paul's mind was with Christ. His whole thought, his heart, everything was with Christ. And so his soul would follow him there. He has... Number one, meditated on Christ in heaven. The first thing you should do to prepare your mind and your heart for Christ is to meditate on Christ in heaven. That means think about. That means ruminate on. That means chew on it a while and get all the juices into you. He shows us this in chapter 2 when he talks about adopting the same attitude that is that of Christ. And we're going to talk about that on Easter about what it is to meditate on who this Jesus Christ is in heaven. Number two, he loosened affections to earthly things. 
He stopped loving the things of this world. He started to pry the finger hold that was holding on to his life. The earth wants to put their fingers or their claws into your heart and hold on to it. That's why Netflix is so appealing, because they have movies that you can binge watch. The guy cutting my hair this week, I asked him what he did for fun, and he said, oh, I binge watch Netflix. That's his life. He binge watched Netflix. I said, that's interesting. Why do you do that? I like it. I enjoy it. It's fun. Is that your life? Why not take a little finger hold out of your heart from the world? Start getting rid of some of these things that are distracting you. That's why TV commercials are so appealing. They want you to desire something. I've used this analogy before, so don't roll your eyes because I, I, I feel like I'm attacking the commercials. Because what do they do? They don't just say, this is the best product, you should buy it. They say, what's, the project, what's that project that you have in your hand? You have the iPhone number seven? Uh-uh, mm -mm. you need the iPhone 250. This one's way better, right? This one does all the things. This one doesn't do all the things. This is what you need, right? And they awaken a desire in you for something else. And that's what you have to get rid of. You have to start breaking the hold of this world. And that's what Paul does. He loosened the affections to earthly things. And then he labored to keep a good conscience. How do you labor to keep a good conscience? Well, first off, stop lying. Don't lie. Look at your life. Are there things that are inconsistent? Do you say that you love Jesus, but really you love alcohol? Do you say that you love Jesus, but you live your life for your children? Do you love Jesus, or do you live for something else? That's the question. What are you living for? Are you living for a life of ease and pleasure and comfort? Or are you living for Jesus? Living for Jesus is not always comfortable, friends. We see that in Paul's life. Over and over again, this guy is shipwrecked. He's attacked. He's beat up. He's yelled at, screamed at, spit upon, thrown in prison. And he says, I have joy. Would you have that joy? He has assurance because he sees the change of desire in his heart. You, assurance is a tricky thing for us Christians because some of you could look at your life right now and should not be assured of salvation. You just shouldn't. Some of you in 50 years will look back and say, I am assured of my salvation. We can't really tell based off today's weather forecast whether we're saved or not. But we can look at our life and see, is there a trajectory of saving faith? Have my, has my desire changed for Jesus Christ? Because some of us will pop up with excitement for maybe a couple weeks, a month, or a year, and then after two or three, we start to get bored of this Jesus Christ. It was a novel idea at one point, but then it was not so interesting after all. If that's you, you need to check your heart and ask God to give you a desire, a hunger for Him. Check your heart. If you are not desiring Jesus Christ as your soul life, you might not be saved. That just may be the case. I would examine your heart. If you don't desire to be holy, you should check your heart. And finally, Paul thinks rightly of death. This is something that the Puritans were really good about. And everybody would call them super morbid, right? Because they would walk around and think about death. If I died, 
If I died, where would my heart be? Would I be with my Savior or would I not? They would say, this guy is morbid. All he thinks about is death. He says, correct, because I'm trying to prepare for life today. Not for tomorrow, for today. So think about death rightly. Think of it as a passageway to your Savior. We don't have control of whether we live or we die. We don't know when our next day of death is going to be. We don't know when Paul is going to die. He doesn't know if standing before Nero in a few weeks, he has to, to tell, uh, he has a trial and he has to tell them about Jesus, whether he's going to die because of it or he's going to live because of it. So he is not in control of the choice, but he's talking about what do I do? So the dilemma that Paul has is do I go or do I stay? Do I want to live or do I want to die? What's it going to be? What do I want the outcome to be when I stand before Nero and tell him about this Jesus? He says, I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Did you hear what he just said? Dying is far better than staying here with you people. Right? That's what he said. He says, I want to die. It's far better for me to die and be with Christ. And what he's saying is when I die, I will go immediately to Christ. There's no soul sleep. There's no spending some time getting eaten by worms for about a thousand years or however long. And then Jesus returns. He is going to be with Christ immediately. That's what he is saying here. He's like, I will die and be with Christ. When he says depart, it's kind of like how a ship who is parked on the dock is getting ready to leave and people take the ropes and they let them go. He's saying, I am being loosened to go and be with Christ. He is, that's what he longs for. That's what he desires. That is what is much better. And so for the Christian, we have much to gain. We have much to gain for a believer in death. We are being planted in better soil would be another way we could describe dying. We are planted with our Jesus, with our Christ. But then he says this in 24, but to remain in the flesh, to remain in body, is more necessary for your sake. So he has, he has a dilemma, doesn't he? Do I die, which is far better because I'll be with my Jesus that I've lived my life for? Or do I stay and help you, which is more necessary? He doesn't know what to choose. He's hemmed in on both sides and the walls are getting smaller. He is looking down. He is so committed to the kingdom that he wants to return to his king. He has served the kingdom of Jesus Christ so long that he longs to go back. In many ways, it's like a soldier who leaves his mom, dad, or her mom, dad, brother, sister, wife, husband, family, and goes on a deployment. Why do they do that? Not because it's far better for them to deploy and fight in a war, but it's more necessary to do their duty. So that soldier would long to be home with their family, but instead they go and they do their duty. That's what Paul is saying here. He's like, it's much better for me to be with Christ, my king, my sovereign, but instead it's more necessary. And so I need to wait until I am summoned. I do not need to desert the battlefield. I do not need to be a, um, to go AWOL 
on my Jesus. And so he says he's going to be committed. Paul's dilemma should be our dilemma. Maybe in greater and smaller scales. Of course, we should long to be with Jesus. We should all long that for that. But also on the small things in life. Have you thought about why you are torn between two options? So let's look at some examples. Maybe getting a second job would be better, would be far better for you personally. Maybe going and getting a, another degree would be better. For my example, maybe me going and pursuing a PhD would be far better for me professionally, personally, and for some reason, uh, maybe for you all as well. But what if I'd neglect the things that are necessary? What if in my attempt to get this PhD, I abandon my family? And I focus so hard on my studies, which is far better than I neglect my children, my wife. It takes me five years to get a PhD. My eight-year-old is now a 13-year-old with an absentee dad. What is far better and what is necessary? These are what you should be torn between. Maybe getting a second job would be better for you personally. Maybe financially you would be able to buy that RV and, and say in 10 years I'll be able to go camping more but then you neglect what is necessary today, right now. You should be torn between good things and great things. You should be torn between the things that are necessary and are better. So don't choose the better and neglect the necessary. That's my exhortation to you. Don't choose the better and neglect the necessary. There are ways to work in a second job and still maintain your necessary things. There's ways to go get your education and not neglect what is necessary. Many of you may have that struggle. Do not choose the better and neglect the necessary. That's what Paul is doing here. And then he has his determination in verse 25. Because he's so single-minded in his service, he wants them to progress in the faith. We've seen this word progress before. And I said it's like a calf scout who goes and he pioneers the path. It is a pioneer. And what Paul is saying here in 25 is, since I am persuaded, I am convinced, I'm determined of this. I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Paul is a man of service. We see that he sees other people as those he needs to serve. Serving others is necessary in following Christ. If you do not serve others, you probably aren't in Christ. I want you to think about that for a minute. Paul is so single-minded in his service to the kingdom, he serves others. He is other-centered. The more Christ-centered he is, the more other-centered he becomes. This should be your life as well. And then he says this, so that, what's the whole purpose of Paul's life? Progress in the faith. He cares about this, this church in Philippi. This is his first church plant, if you will. This is a church that um, grew out of his ministry in particular in Philippi. 
and he says, I want your faith to grow. This, is, this should be every pastor's heart. We should be all about the progress of your faith. Remember what I said about faith? Don't forget the threefold nature of faith. Not only am I giving you knowledge, not, not only am I trying to help you see that this is true, but I want you to trust in who Jesus is. Those are the three things that I'm thinking about when I talk about faith. This is what the Bible is emphasizing when it talks about faith. You miss any of those three things, you miss the gospel. You miss saving faith. If you don't have knowledge of this story about Jesus Christ, what are you believing in? What are you trusting in? If you don't have an idea that this is true, if you think it's fake, why would you trust it in the first place? And then finally, if you believe it, if you think it could be true, but you don't trust, what are you even doing? Why waste your time? Paul is so dedicated to the progress of the faith in these people. He says that this will result in boasting and joy. Joy in the faith. Do you have joy? Why are you not having joy? What could be the reason why sometimes some of you come to church thinking, I got to do my duty. Here I come. Going to worship Jesus. This is going to be great. So happy to be here. Right? How many of us wake up in the morning and think, church, here we go again. Right? Do, Do you have that? Why is that? Is it because your heart is not stirred with who this Jesus is? Is it because you spent all week watching Netflix, binge watching these TV shows that are trying to pull you away from the one thing that's important? I know that when I spend less time in this and studying this, my sermons almost become more of a chore than the joy that it really is. Many pastors consider their sermons a type of sacrifice, an altar um, sacrifice that they are bringing before the Lord and they are laying it on the altar and presenting it to God. And that's how we should think of it. Would God be delighted in a pastor who comes up here like this? (sighs) Well, guys, I think we're going to look at this Bible verse. Oh, for me to live as Christ dies gain. All right, good, good talk and walk away, right? No, God would be, would, would abhor that. That would be an abomination. So why is it that you come to church unmotivated? Is it because you see this as a duty or as a delight? Do you see this as something good or something you have to do to get to heaven? Because if you think it's something you have to do to get to heaven, you're wrong. You cannot get to heaven by being in perfect church attendance every Sunday just won't work. You could give all of your money to the church and you still won't get to heaven. You could be the best outside Christian that you could possibly be. You could be smiley all the time. You could be happy all the time. You could treat your children right, do everything right, and still miss the gospel. Don't make that be you. Don't spend 50, 60, 70 years sitting in church and completely missing the truth that is presented to you Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, that Jesus is your greatest treasure. If he is not your greatest treasure, what is? And why is he not? We, we know a lot about Christ from the Gospels. 
And when they talk about Christ, they said, because of the, tre- the joy of the obedience that he had to do that was set before him, the trial set before him, he endured the cross because of the joy set before him. He approached the cross with joy. Though it was going to hurt, though it was going to be miserable, though there is trepidation, though he cried tears of blood, it said he approached that with joy. How are you celebrating the gospel? Here it says boasting, but it could also be celebrating. Paul's whole point is though that because of my coming to you again, your boasting, your celebrating in Christ, Jesus may abound. How many of you have had a birthday where people have forgotten that it was your birthday? Or maybe you had some big event and people forgot about it. Makes you feel kind of bad, doesn't it? Makes you feel kind of lonely. What Paul is saying is that we are celebrating Christ every day for the work that he did for us. The salvation that he achieved for you and for me. Not with any effort of our own. And we don't really like that because we like to be self-sufficient, don't we? One of the things I would like to see you do is to look at the back of your bulletin. On it, you will see that there's a place to take notes. I would like you to take Paul's name and draw a line through it. And then I would like to see you put your name above Paul's in your notes. And I want you to consider what it would be like for you to have the same mind of Paul here. When I did that, Mine said this, Matt's declaration for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the declaration of my life now. That is what I am going to live for. That is what I will make my existence be about. The second thing, Matt's dilemma. Will I have the same dilemma as that of Paul? Would I long to be with Christ but remain here because it's necessary for me to raise my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Will I seek to love my wife and provide for her the gospel on a daily basis? Will I try to imitate Christ so much that when she sees me, she sees Christ? Now, friends, you know that I fail at this more than I succeed. But this is your new declaration. We have a lot of freedoms in our country that we declare is necessary, but we don't live up to that standard all the time, do we? So then my final thing is Matt's determination. My determination is to be single-minded in my service to Jesus Christ, so much so that I sacrifice myself for others, that I live for the progress of other people's faith. So if you did what I asked, Your name should be there in Paul's place. You may want to take this and frame it somewhere. You may want to say, I declare that I live for Jesus Christ. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You may say, my dilemma is that I long to be with Jesus, but I'm going to live this life in light of that truth. And then you may say, I determine to serve single-mindedly for the progress and joy 
of other people's faith. One thing you could do is you could take this verse, for me to live as Christ and die as gain, write it on a three-by-five card and put it on your bathroom mirror. You could put it in your car and have it somewhere near a dashboard. You could put it in your wallet and have it as a constant reminder that this sums up the Christian life. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As I was studying this passage, it came to me that this is the perfect funeral sermon. This is a perfect funeral sermon. How would you like the pastor to come up and say, this brother in Christ, my friend, he said this in his life, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's, that's what I want my eulogy to say. That's what I want people to look at me and say, not say, oh, look at Matt, look how cool he was. How nice of a, not so much of a beard he has, right? I want, I want them to see Christ when they look at me. I don't care about any accomplishments. That's what Paul is saying later down the road. He says, I don't care about anything else but that I live for Christ. I ran the race that was put before me. Are you running that race? Are you focusing in on Christ? If you are not, I beg you, you're missing out on the joy of being a Christian. If you do not know Jesus and you're in this room, if you do not, there's two things that we can do here. The first thing is, if you don't know this Jesus and you're not living for him, make it right. Come to talk to one of these elders, come talk to me, and we will talk to you about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. The second thing is, if you are a Christian, you have called yourself a Christian, and you have strayed from this reality. If you have maybe abandoned the idea of what it means to live fully for Christ, we have a mechanism in place. We have a system in place that we go through as Christians. It's called confession. Now, this is not where there's a priest that you go and you knock on his door and you tell him all your deep, dark secrets, and then he says, okay, say five Hail Marys, light three candles, and serve some poor people. No, what this is, is I, you go before God and you say, God, I have sinned. I have not lived my life for you the way that I should. You confess it. It helps to do it verbally. Sometimes it's good to go into your closet, close the door, don't let anybody hear all your deep, dark secrets, and you stand before a holy, perfect God, and you say, I have failed to live up to the standard that you have set before me. And then recognize that with that confession comes forgiveness. When you confess, in many ways you're repenting at the same time. You're turning away from that and turning to something. Most of our behavior is, is one of two choices, acting in belief or acting in unbelief, acting in faith or acting in non-faith. Are you trusting in Jesus to fulfill what he says he will? Are you looking for him as your greatest joy, as your greatest happiness? Or are you looking at something else? Because when we look for something else, we're missing, we're missing Jesus. We're missing him. Are you prepared for death? There's young people in this room and less young people in this room. And I want you to ask this question of yourself. Am I prepared to die? If you are young, now is the time to get ready. If you are not so young, it's not too late. Prepare to die. What's your agenda? 
When you open up your calendar and God looks at your calendar, what did you spend your time doing? Was it frivolous activities? Are you fittering away time by looking at social media and just one more scroll, one more scroll? What do they call that? The death scroll, right? And you just get caught up into social media. Or you have one more Netflix movie, one more TV show. I got to watch the next episode because this is all important in my life. If you've done what I said about crossing out Paul out of these and put your name there, I pray that this becomes real for you, that you examine your hearts today and that you live for Christ. You don't live for anything else. If you're living for anything else, you're not living for Christ. It's, it's essentially committing adultery. If I said, oh, I love my wife, but I also love my girlfriend, am I truly loving wife, my wife? Is that true love? It's not. That's why the Bible speaks with no uncertain terms about adultery of the heart before a holy and perfect God. So if you've been committing adultery by pursuing other things than Jesus Christ, now's the time to confess it and repent of it. We're going to give you about a couple of minutes to work through that with your, in, in quiet and peace. So go ahead and bow your head. If you feel like you need to stay where you are, you can deal with it between you and God there. You also have room up here at the stage if you feel like you need to come forward and, and deal with your, your heart there. Um, but now's the time of dealing, of responding to this message. There's no accident that you were in this room when Paul says, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. God wants you to check your heart. Now's the time to do it. Almighty God, we come before you this afternoon, this, this, this post-sermon time, with our hearts before you. I pray that this week you will challenge everyone in this congregation with their faith, that they would have a moment of clarity and decision to either live for you or to live for themselves. And that if they were, to, they were to fail and they lived for themselves, that you would convict their hearts so mightily that they would turn from it through confession and repentance and pursue you. Father, help us to be people on fire for the Lord. That our hearts would be to live for you. Every circumstance, every breath would be for us to live for Christ. That we would work for Christ that we would watch TV for the sake of Christ, that we would entertain ourselves 
but only the things that are honoring and pleasing to you, that our minds would be so focused on you, on watching the track that lays before us, that we would focus on you, the goal of our Christian faith, the reward, the treasure that is you. Father, I pray that you become more beautiful to everyone in this room, that you would have people look upon Christ and just fall more and more enraptured by who he is, the beauty of what it means for God to become man and die on a cross for us, taking our place that we so deserve. God, I am humbled that we can read your words from your text, that you would tell us what we need to know at every stage of our life. Father, I pray for encouragement to everyone in this room, that as they live this room, that they would have the joy that comes with following you, that they would be encouraged and, and so overflowing with happiness that their neighbors would want to ask the question, what do you have and how do I get it? And they would gladly smile and say, look at Jesus. Look at what Jesus has done for us. Father, I pray that everyone in this room would be an evangelist, that they would evangelize every person that they run across, that people would see them coming and know that what's about to happen, that when they walk into a restaurant or a store, anyone in that place that sees them will say, this person's about to talk to me about Jesus. Father, I pray that we would be, we would carry the aroma of the death of Christ with us wherever we go not with words of eloquent wisdom, but with the truth of the gospel, that we would herald it, not only in the, in the town of Sierra Vista, but across the state of Arizona, across the country, and to the whole world. Father, play, I pray that we would be a hub of the gospel, that the closer people got to Sierra Vista Baptist Church, the more they would know about Jesus. God, I pray this, I've been praying this for several weeks and months now. My heart longs to be a vessel for you in Sierra Vista, in this church. And I pray that everyone else catches that same fire for you. Strengthen us, fan into flame this desire for you. We know the psalmist says, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. May our souls long after you. May we thirst for your righteousness. Father, I thank you for your word in 1 John 1, 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, but not only that, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I pray that you would cleanse us of the unrighteousness in our hearts. And all these things we ask Jesus' help and all God's people said, Amen.